are listening to audio from Community Bible Church. If you would like to find out more information about us, please visit us at cbcsavannah.com. God, I'm thankful uh, that it is not up to us to do enough or be enough to earn your love and approval. Thankful that every day that we wake up and every time we gather in this room, we can be confident that you love us because of Jesus not because of who we are or what we've done, but because of who he is and what he's accomplished for us. I pray for this time in your word, God, would you speak to us in and through the pages of scripture. Would you use me? uh, Allow these words to fall in fertile soil in our hearts, God. By the power of your spirit, would it bear fruit for your kingdom that you would help us to be the church? We need your help. Pray that you would help us in this time. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, good morning. Good to see you. If you have a Bible, will you turn to Hebrews chapter 4? We're going to start in verse 14 and work our way down through chapter 5, verse 10, as we continue our series this morning through the letter to the Hebrews. As you're turning there, let me set up where we're going this morning. Do you know where, think about 2011, all right, if you were alive, some of you maybe, I don't know if there's any kids, but think about 2011, picture that in your mind, Um, specifically May, think about May of 2011. How about May 28th? Anybody know where you were on May 28, 2011? One person in the first service did. If you know, come tell me afterwards where you were, specifically at 6 o'clock. I know where I was on that day because the day I got married, all right? Uh, and the time, I think it was 5.30, I think because the invitation said half past 5, which I was like, let's just cut the, the you know, just 5.30, okay? That's just what it is. Anyways, um, I remember that day. It's important. Uh, My wife, her name is Mary Elizabeth. We have four kids, two boys, seven and five, two girls, three, and then our baby will be one in just a couple of days, which is crazy to think about. Uh, And I mentioned that to you um, to tell you this, that on my my lock screen on my phone, I keep a picture of them. I pick this picture. I change it once a year. Uh, Every time we add a new kid, I have to change one. Um, No, I I pick this picture uh, for a reason. Uh, I keep it on my, on my phone as a reminder to pray for them, okay? So just in full transparency as one of your pastors, I do not do that every time I see it, okay? I don't want you to think there's this unrealistic expectation of what it means to be a follower of Jesus. But it is there for me as a reminder to pray for them. And I love the picture that's there uh, for a number of reasons. One, uh, that all six of us are smiling, which is like a Christmas miracle, okay, if you ever try to take a family picture. Uh, I love the picture as well because when you look at it, I can see little bits and pieces. Like you wouldn't see this, but I can see little pieces of my kid's personality just in like the photo itself, you know, which is cool. Also love it because my wife's in it. That goes without saying. Um, but uh, the reason why I mention that is to say this. You know what I never do with the picture? When I see it, I never talk to it. Never hugged it, right? Never prayed for the picture. I've, I've never not one time been tempted to cuddle with it. Okay? And if you're like, that feels weird, that was intended to feel weird, okay? Um, and here's why. Cuddling a, with a picture would be weird. It's not my family, okay? It is a picture of my family, and the picture is important to me because I love my family, not because I love the picture. Does that make sense? And, and, and cuddling a picture would be weird. And, and this morning, what we're going to see in Hebrews 4 and 5 is that God's word is going to tell us, don't cuddle the picture. All right, let me explain This book is called The Letter to the Hebrews because it was written to a group of first century Jewish Christians, okay? Uh, And we don't know how many of them, but at least some of them were tempted to go back to their old way of living. Uh, Because of the circumstances of their life, they were tempted to go back to their old way of thinking about God and thinking about life and and interacting with him. 
Um, so they were raised in Judaism, but then at some point they heard the good news of the gospel uh, that Jesus is the long-awaited Messiah, that he is the promised one, and they believed it, but then what happened? Life got difficult, right? Life happened. Monday happened. Power outage happened. Anyone? Down trees? Yeah, a couple of us. More than 24 hours. It got a little steamy at our house, okay? Um, that's what happens. And, and, and when life gets difficult, it creates doubt in us. This is what was happening with them. Most scholars agree that this was written before 70 AD. So the folks, this original audience, they are within a lifetime of Jesus dying on the cross for their sin, but now because their circumstances weren't what they expected they would be, okay, we believe you are the Messiah, but they expected that was gonna come with some different tangible results than what happened, and so now they're doubting. Now they're thinking, well, maybe we got it wrong. Maybe he wasn't the Messiah after all, and they were tempted to go back to their old way. An old way, the author of chapter 10 describes this way, it'll be on the screen. He says, the old way, this is just a shadow of the good things to come not the true form of these realities. He says it's just a shadow. That word shadow in the original language, the definition of it is this, an image cast by an object representing the form of that object. You know what he just said? It's just a picture. It's just a shadow, it's just a picture. It's not the true form of those realities. So he writes this whole letter to compel them not to go back to cuddling the picture but to hold fast to Jesus because he is better. That is the, if you want to summarize this entire letter, all these chapters, three words, Jesus is better. And the natural response to that when you hear that is to go, well, better than what? What's he better than? And the answer the Bible gives is yes. It doesn't matter how you fill in the blank or how you finish the sentence, Jesus is better. Listen to how he starts this book. I know I told you to turn to chapter four. I want to read just the first couple verses of chapter one. It'll be on the screen. He says this. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. He's saying, that's the shadow. But here's the true form. He says this, but in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, Jesus, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom he also created the world. He, Jesus, is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. And after making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become, listen to this, as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more, inherited is more excellent than theirs. This word superior in verse four, uh, in other translations like the King James or the New American Standard, they'll, they'll use a different word. Instead of superior, they use the word better. And that's not wrong. I just think the ESV uses this word because the way we tend to use better is just like, it's the best of a bunch of pretty good options. And that's not the type of better that Jesus is. This is not, this is, this one option is so superior that it renders all other options inferior. It's cuddling the picture. It would be that weird. And I think the easy thing for us to do when we read this letter, because it's written to a group of first century Jewish Christians, is to, to, to hear how he applies it and we sort of check out because we're like, I don't know what to do with this. How does this apply to my life, right? But I think we are a lot more like this original audience than we tend to realize. Now, the majority of us didn't grow up Jewish, maybe some of you did. The majority of us didn't grow up Jewish, but we are here this morning because just like this original audience, we have heard that Jesus is the Christ. And we came to believe that he is the promised one, that God is restoring and renewing the world through his son, Jesus, right? We believe that, and and even though we claim to believe that that's who he is, that's who the Bible says, Many of us are tempted to go back to living the way we did before we believed that. 
were like this original audience. And some of you didn't come to faith later in life, but you grew up in church and you got saved really young. And so you're not tempted to go back to another way of living, but you are tempted to live as if the reality of Christ's lordship doesn't apply to you, at least not in every area of your life. And I'm not talking about in here on Sunday morning or at your community group or whatever Bible study you're a part of, right? I'm talking about when it's just you at home and no one's watching. Does Christ's lordship apply to you there? What about you at work or you at school? What about the way you spend your money? What about the way that you treat those people that you just don't care for that much? Does Christ's lordship apply there? We're tempted to go back to living a way that isn't consistent with what the scriptures say should be true about us as followers of Jesus. And we just read in chapter one where the author starts his argument. He says, Jesus is better than angels. And again, we hear that and there's a challenge because our immediate response is, of course he is. Of course he's better than the angels, right? But what he's saying is that Jesus is better than some obscure spiritual reality. So applying that to us means it's not okay, it's not enough to just believe that God exists. It's not even enough to believe that Jesus came, lived, and died on the cross. And and I'm gonna let that linger there for a second because that's upsetting a little bit. Say, well, I thought that's all it was. Yes, we must believe that Jesus came, lived, died, and rose again, but it's not just believing it happened. We must believe that the death he died on the cross was in your place. That the punishment that he paid for your sin and his resurrection, that that points to uh, the reality that he has overcome sin and death for you, not just in some obscure way, it's personal. This is what it takes. Church, the claim that Jesus is Lord changes everything. And it's not just something we get to pick and choose where it applies to our life. I heard a pastor say this week, what God is doing in and through his church is not supposed to be just some little religious garnish on the side of an already above average self-centered life. That stung a little bit because we like to pick and choose where it applies. And he says, Jesus is better. This is what the author means when he says that. He's not the best of a bunch of different but still pretty good options. He's superior and all other options are inferior. So he says, don't go back. Don't cuddle the picture. Hold fast to Jesus because he's better than the angels. Better than obscure Christianity or spirituality. Then in chapter three, he says that Jesus is better than Moses. And again, we hear that and what do we think? Of course he is. That's not hard for us, but then in this original audience, they would be like, better than Moses? Moses is the one who led us out of slavery in Egypt. And Moses is the one through whom God gave us the law that showed us how we were supposed to live our lives as God's people in the world. And the author of Hebrew goes, I know. And that was awesome, but Jesus is better. You know why? Because he didn't bring us out of uh, physical slavery in Egypt. He brought us out of spiritual slavery to sin. And he didn't bring us a law to obey to show us how to live as God's people. He came, Matthew 5 says, to do what? To fulfill the law so that he could forever restore us into right relationship with God, right? And he doesn't, the point here is not only should we not live in that obscure spiritual, like uh, obscure spirituality, but don't also don't swing the pendulum the other way where you live under the law of legalism, where you believe that it's up to you to do enough and be enough to earn God's love and approval. And not only that, you have to do enough to keep it. So he's saying, don't go back to that way of measuring what it takes for God to be pleased with you. Jesus is better than Moses. Don't cuddle the picture. Hold fast. So here in our text today, he's going to begin a new argument of what is inferior to Jesus. And it's an argument that is actually going to take him quite a while to finish. So he starts in verse 14 of chapter 4. He finishes it in chapter 10. All right? So we're going to be talking about this for a while. And we're just going to start it today. 
Look with me, chapter 4, starting in verse 14. He says, Since then, we have a great high priest. All right, I'm going to stop right there. And you're going, hey, we're never going to get through with this. We will. All right, it's going to be fine. I just want to make sure you don't miss his point, okay? Jesus is better than angels. Jesus is better than Moses. Here he's starting an argument where he says this. Jesus is a better high priest. That's the point of this chapter 4 through chapter 10, okay? Jesus is a better high priest. We're going to look at a portion of that today because just like with the angels and Moses, these words, Jesus is a better high priest, would have meant a lot more to his original audience than they likely do for us. Because many of us, maybe even most of us, have no real concept of who or what the high priest was. And so Jesus being our great high priest doesn't move the needle for us that much. So like when I just said, Jesus is a better high priest, you go, okay, where are we eating lunch? It doesn't move the needle that much for us, but here's the thing, I think it should. I think it should, and hopefully in the next few minutes it will. And so we're going to get in the weeds a little bit here. This is going to feel a little bit like an Old Testament systematic class. Some of you are like, ooh, that's exciting. And others, you're like, where are we going to lunch? <laughs> I wish we would have gone out of town for Labor Day, okay? Um, but it's interesting what the author does here. In verse 14, he comes out and he just says, Jesus is a, is a great high priest. And then in the end of 14, 15, and 16, he gives us the application. He says, since this is who Jesus is, here's what should change about your life. And then in chapter 5, he kind of does it in, in backwards order. In chapter 5, the first 10 verses, he says, uh, here's why he's a better high priest. So we're going to do it in reverse order because I want you to see first what makes him the great high priest, and then we'll come back and look at what that has to do with us and how that changes our lives. So if you're taking notes, here's a simple outline of this passage. Verses 1 to 4 of chapter 5 are the qualifications of the high priest. All right, This is him saying, Here, here's what it means to be a high priest. And again, we're going to get a little bit in the weeds. I need you to stick with me because when we bring it back around to chapter 4, hopefully you'll see how this is worth it. And then verses 5 to 10 is essentially Jesus' resume. This is why he is the only one who can fulfill this role of great high priest. So let's look at that together in, that, in those categories. Verse 1 of chapter 5 says, For every high priest chosen from among men is appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God, to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. He can deal gently with the ignorant and the wayward since he himself is beset with weakness. Because of this, he is obligated to offer sacrifice for his own sins, just as he does for those of the people. And no one takes this honor for himself, but only when called by God, just as Aaron was. Pretty clear, right? You can just say amen and call the band back up here? No, here's what he's talking about. The role of high priest in Israel would have come with all sorts of responsibilities throughout their lives. And that's, that's kind of liturgical, that's in this kind of space, and in civic life, so outside of what we would consider church. But by far, the most significant part of the role of high priests would be that they would oversee the sacrificial system. See what I meant? Old Testament systematic class? All right, stick with me. We're going to be fine. They oversaw the sacrificial system. And it's important for us to know that the priestly office and all the rules and regulations that went with the sacrificial system weren't created by Israel, right? They were given to Israel by who? God. God gave them, right, the sacrificial system. If you want more on the rules and regulations, which I know you all do, you can read the book of Leviticus, specifically chapter 8, 9, and 16, okay? And if you do that, when you read those chapters this afternoon, uh, what you're going to see is there is a lot of blood involved, all right? And that, I know it feels weird to be talking about blood, 
But again, it's important to note the sacrificial system isn't Israel's attempt of trying to earn God's approval, but rather this is God's way of providing for his people atonement for their sin. Now, we need to know what the word atonement means. It's a word I think we use a lot, and since we use it a lot, we have the tendency to think we know what it means. We might even drop it in a prayer at community group. God, thank you for the atonement, and then move on, because, yeah, I mean, I've heard somebody said it before. We need to know what it means, okay? Um, Other translations of this word use the English word forgiveness, and it is forgiveness, but that's not all that it is. A literal translation is to cover, or to cleanse, it's the idea of purge. So it's not just, let me forgive you, this sacrifice is a, uh, for forgiveness of your sin, and then hey, don't let it happen again. It's a, a purging, a covering, a removal of sin, right? It, it means to make clean. This is talking about the full restoration of relationship with God. And again, the system of sacrifices were initiated by God, it came this way, through the shedding of blood of an animal uh, for the forgiveness of the people of God. All right, and if you're a vegan in here and you're triggered, I'm sorry, okay? The point here is not, I'm really not sorry, but the point is not that God doesn't love animals. All the, the death, the blood, the sacrifices in the Old Testament under this system that the high priest would be responsible to oversee, the point is not God doesn't like animals. The point is this, forgiveness for sin is costly. And what's the Bible say? The wages of sin is what? Death. Hebrews 9, verse 22 says it this way, without the what? Shedding of blood... There is no forgiveness of sins. That's his point. Not that God doesn't care about animals, but that without this, uh, there is no forgiveness of sins. And I go into all that because the role of the high priest was to make sure, so significant, to make sure that this system of sacrifices that God had ordained and given to Israel would be administered correctly. And this was especially important once a year on the Day of Atonement. It's called Yom Kippur, right? And on that day, it would be the specific responsibility of the high priest to pass through the veil in the temple into what's called the Holy of Holies. And I use that language specifically, pass through. I want you to kind of picture that in your mind, this high priest in all his garb passing through the veil into the Holy of Holies because we're gonna come back to that at the end, this idea of pass through. But he would go into the Holy of Holies and he'd have the blood from the sacrifice and he would sprinkle it on the, mother, on the mercy seat, not the mother seat, that would be weird. It's a mercy seat on the Ark of the Covenant and, and that would be what would be required for the people to have atonement Again, forgiveness and covering for their sin for that year. And as the high priest, when he would go in there, he would have on the breastplate the 12 tribes of Israel inscribed on it, which, which was significant. It showed that he was a representative of the people, that he would go in to represent all the people in the presence of God. This is what chapter 5, verse 1 is talking about. Let's read it again with all that in mind. Every high priest is chosen from among men. He's appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. He was a representative. And verse three goes on to say that the only way the high priest could go into the Holy of Holies to make an atonement for sin is he had to first make atonement for his own sin because if he didn't, he would die. He would be struck dead. And there's evidence of that in Leviticus too. It's a little more exciting than maybe you thought. So the high priest played two roles. He would stand before God and declare the sins of the people. And then he would come out of the Holy of Holies, stand before the people and declare the holiness of God. This was the role of the high priest. It was a weighty role, and since it was a weighty role, not just anyone could do it. Just like you couldn't just stand up right now and say, I'm the pastor here. Well, Bill could, because he is. But no one else could just stand up and declare that that would be true about you, right? This is what he says in verse four. No one takes honor for himself, but only when called by God, just as Aaron was. Right, so he's saying you can't, uh, you have to be called 
they, they had to be from the tribe of Levi. They had to be from, more specifically, from one of the sons of Aaron from that family. And so in verses 1 to 4, these are his qualifications for the requirement of high priest. They have to be chosen or appointed by God from among men to be a representative. And, and, and starting in verse 5, what he's going to do is he's going to say, here's how Jesus fully not just meets those qualifications, but how he is fit to be a greater high priest. And I'm going to show you three reasons why in these couple of verses. There are more, but let me just show you three. Look at verse 5. So also... Christ did not exalt himself to be made a high priest, but he was appointed by him, that's God the Father, who said to him, Jesus, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. And he says also in another place, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. So the first reason we see here that Jesus is a better high priest is because he has been appointed. He was appointed by God. And the author makes this argument to this group of first century Jews by quoting two passages of Old Testament scripture, the Psalms. Quote Psalm 2, Psalm 110. If you're familiar with Psalm 2, uh, you know it's a messianic psalm. Uh, When you read it, right after what was just quoted, you are my son, today I have begotten you, it says this, ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. The original audience would have known that. So when, when they heard, you are my son today, I've begotten you, they're connecting Jesus with the office of great high priest, and they know that the point that he's making is that the Father has given Jesus the nations. He has authority and power over all of the offices of the world. So not only has he been called and appointed by God to serve as high priest, he doesn't serve as high priest as one of the sons of Aaron as a part of the Levitical priesthood, right? He does it how? As a son of God. Not as a son of Aaron, but as a son of God. And then he makes that point by quoting Psalm 110, where he says this, you are priests forever after the order of Melchizedek. I'm not going to spend a lot of time on this idea of Melchizedek this morning. We're going to see that in a lot more depth in chapter 7, because the author of Hebrews comes back to that. This name, Melchizedek, is only mentioned twice in the Old Testament. It's mentioned in Psalm 110, and then also in Genesis 14. And really, we don't know much about him, uh, but what is said about him in Genesis 14 is that he is the king of Salem, and he is a priest forever. So he's this mysterious character in the Old Testament, a lot of different theories about him. Again, we're going to come back to that in chapter 7, but what what is important for today is he's some of this priest-king combination. And there's something with eternity and forever, and I think that's actually why the author of Hebrews mentions it here. He knows he's going to say it later, but he kind of tips his hand a little bit because of this word forever. Jesus is a priest, not after the Levitical order, but after the order of Melchizedek because he is our priest forever. This matters for us because it means that if Jesus is a priest uh, after Melchizedek, then he will be our representative forever. It means there is no term limit to his priestly office because he has been given the nations and as long as Jesus represents, represents us, church, we can be confident that we are represented rightly. That atonement, covering, and forgiveness for sin is secured because he is a priest, again, forever. So he's a better high priest because he's been, as the son of God, he was appointed. And here's the second one, look at verse seven. In the days of the flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverence. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. Here's the second thing, is that Jesus is a better high priest because he knows. Not only is he appointed by God, he knows. And and what I mean by that is he, we're gonna see it in a second, he has compassion. He knows what you're going through, everything, And he has compassion 
toward you in those things, right? Here's where I get that. Verse two says that one of the qualifications of the high priest was that he would deal gently with the ignorant and the wayward because he himself is beset with sin, right? It says that. And when the original audience would have heard that, they would have known, yeah, that's what they were supposed to do, but that's not what they do. Because the, the high priestly office had become corrupted because it became, rather than what it was supposed to be, uh, an office of humility it had become an office of pride, an office of importance. Look at me. Rather than being a representative of the people and a representative of God, he became a representative of himself. And the argument the author of Hebrews is making is Jesus isn't like that. He is a better high priest. This is what they were supposed to do, but this is what Jesus does. And verse 7 just said that Jesus knows he understands what we're dealing with and he is filled with compassion for you. So when, when I read, in the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save, what, what picture comes to mind? The garden, right? This is a reference of Jesus in, a clear reference to him in the garden, agonizing in prayer. Hours before the cross, Luke 22 says, to the degree that even his sweat was like drops of blood, Praying this, Father, if at all possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but what? As you will. It's a clear reference to that, but I also think it's not just talking about what Jesus does for us on the cross. Because he says in verse 7, in the days of his flesh, not just on that day, but in the days, which I think is kind of giving us a broader picture of what Christ has done and why he is suitable for us uh, to be our representative to be the great high priest. So yes, it's talking about the cross, but it's also talking about everything from the manger to the tomb, right? Look at verse eight again. He says, although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. Verse nine, being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to him or to all who obey him. So what does it mean uh, that Jesus learned obedience and was made perfect? Because when I was reading that, I was going, wait, does that mean he was imperfect? Does that mean he had formally disobeyed, right? And, and, and church, we have to answer that question when it comes to our mind with a resounding no, okay? This isn't speaking of a lack of moral or character quality because if it did, then he would not be our perfect representative. If Jesus was imperfect but then became perfect, if he was uh, disobeyed and then learned to obey, then he could not be our perfect representative. He's not just the best high priest there ever was. He is better, superior, of a different kind altogether. So here's what this does mean is that Jesus had to live the fullness of his 33-year life until he was perfected, made complete, as a representative of the human experience. Maybe a better way to say it is this. He didn't suffer at eight, and he wasn't tempted at 16 the way he was tempted in the wilderness at 30 and the way he suffered at 33 on the cross. But it, was, it couldn't just start there. I read an article this week that said that Gethsemane didn't happen, that that prayer experience didn't happen in kindergarten. That it was, it was all of the fullness of Jesus' suffering that allows him to stand in our place as a representative, as a covering for our sin, but also to be the one who comes alongside us when we're tempted to sin. And to come alongside us with compassion when we feel shame, when we have sinned. It's the fullness of what Christ has done, to not just what he did for us on the cross, as necessary to again, cover our failure in those areas and also give us hope when we're tempted to fail again. I think the thought of Jesus being without sin a lot of times uh, makes us think that he would lack compassion for us. So if you know somebody 
Um, you know, we, we call it somebody who we think is better than them or, or they think they're better than everyone else. There's names for them in our culture. You know, you're goody two shoes, you're holier than thou or whatever. And so if we were to interact with them with our sin and try to be honest about it, we would think they would judge us. You don't understand because you don't deal with what I deal with. Like that's the kind of way we think. And so I think we bring that into our relationship with Jesus and we think that Jesus kind of rolls his eyes at us when we're sin. Oh, he did that again. But this text is saying it's the opposite. This text is saying that since Jesus is without sin, he's actually the only one who can actually be compassionate because he knows what it took to resist that temptation that we gave into. C.S. Lewis says this. It's a long quote, but I think it's worth our time. He says, no man knows how bad he is till he has tried very hard to be good. A silly idea is current that good people don't know what temptation means. This is an obvious lie. Only those who try to resist temptation know how strong it is. After all, you find out the strength of the German army by fighting against it, not by giving in. You find out the strength of a wind by trying to walk against it, not by lying down. And a man who gives in to temptation after five minutes simply does not know what it would have been like an hour later. We never find out the strength of evil impulse inside us until we try to fight it. And here's the point. And Christ, because he was the only man who never yielded to temptation, is also the only man who knows to the full what the temptation means. Jesus knows. And he has compassion for you. He never once felt the relief, even for a moment, of saying, okay, just this one time. Constantly enduring temptation and suffering. And he experienced suffering in our place so that we can identify, so that he rather can identify with us when we suffer. So we don't confuse our suffering in our life or difficult circumstances with, oh, God must not love me anymore. Jesus in our place. He's a better high priest because he's appointed because he knows. And then here's the third one. Because his salvation is eternal. I don't know if you saw this in verse 9. He says, being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation. This means that the atonement that Jesus brings, the cleansing, the forgiveness that he brings, it's not annual. It's not once a year on the day of atonement. It's not from feast to feast. It's not even from Sunday to Sunday. It's eternal. This word literally means without end. And that's what he has done. This is what makes him a better high priest because the salvation that he brings, the covering that he brings for us is eternal. It is without end. And yet how many of us live our spiritual lives from Sunday to Sunday? And you leave here convinced and reminded by the power of the Holy Spirit through the preaching of his word and the singing and the gathering of the the people of God. You leave here convinced, oh yeah, God loves me even though I don't deserve it. And you go to be the church. And then what happens? Monday and then Tuesday and Wednesday. And then by Sunday, you drag yourself back in. You feel like it couldn't be possible that God could love you because of this, 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 and this. This is the, the way we live our lives, Sunday to Sunday. But Jesus' salvation is eternal. And, and for, for who, though? This is important. Who is it eternal for? Verse 9, what's it say? Being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who what? All who what? Obey him. And, and for some of you, you just said, there it is, the bait and switch. You just said that God could love me, but here's, that's it. This is what I have to do. I have to obey him. All right, let me just clarify. This is not saying that we have to be perfect in our obedience. Because if it were, we wouldn't need a high priest. We would be our own representative before God. This doesn't make sense to say that we have to be perfect in our obedience in the context of talking about Jesus being the greater high priest. So what does it mean? This word, uh, obey, it, it literally means to listen to listen and respond. Like when Jesus says, 
to the, to the sea in the storm, and he calms the storm, and the, the disciples say, who is this man, the wind and waves, listen to him? Same word. They respond, okay? In this context, it means this. Do not try to let someone or something else do for you what only Jesus can. He's the high priest. Do not try to let someone or something else do for you what only Jesus can. This is what he told us back in chapter 4. Let's look back at that. Chapter 4, verse 14, he says, Since then we have a great high priest. See what I mean? All that he just expounded in chapter 5, 1 to 10. Since this is who Jesus is, since this is what he's done, he says this. Here's what makes him so great. He has passed through the heavens. Jesus, the Son of God. Jesus' high priesthood is better because he hasn't just passed through the curtain, the veil, into the earthly holy of holies. He's passed through the heavens. And right now, he is at the right hand of God, the actual holy of holies, not just the shadow of, of a picture of what it meant to represent. He is the great high priest, the son of God, who's passed through the heavens, and he offers a covering for sin, not with the blood of an animal sacrifice, but with his own blood. Later in chapter 10, he says, a once and for all sacrifice. He has perfected all of us. Jesus is the great high priest. He's given us an eternal covering for our sin. Again, his point, Jesus is better. Don't go back. Don't cuddle the picture. Right? And so I know you're familiar with this text. We read part of it earlier. But when you hear him say this, since then we have a great high priest. Since this is who he is, since this is what he's done, what would you expect him to say next? Because he says since. So he's about to tell us what we're supposed to do. What would you expect for him to say next? I think our tendency is to go, okay, now we know what Jesus has done for us. Now, what is... Uh, what is there for me to do? Now he wants to know or wants to tell me what I'm supposed to do for him. Look at what he says. Since then, we have a great high priest who passed through the heavens, Jesus, the son of God. He says this, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy find grace to help in time of need. Since this is who he is, he says two things, two commands here. He says, hold fast and draw near. Those are the two commands. Since this is who Jesus is, hold fast and draw near. And you could say, well, that does sound like what I'm supposed to do. He did for me. He's a great high priest, once and for all sacrifice, and now my responsibility is to hold fast and draw near. You could say that, but what does he say we should hold fast to? Look at it. Hold fast to what? Our confession. When what is our confession? Our confession is that Jesus has done for us what we can never do for ourselves. Our confession is that Jesus has done for us what no high priest could ever do for us. The good news of the gospel is Christ in my place and me in his. Jesus on the cross paid the penalty for my sin and has brought me forever, given me forever access and you, access into the rights a relationship with God into the throne. That's what he's saying. This is the banner over your life if you've placed your faith in them. This is the rest that we talked about last week earlier in Hebrews 4. This is the rest that's offered in Christ, the great high priest. It means you don't have to earn or measure up for God's expectation for you because Jesus already did it. It also means you don't have to pretend and posture you're someone you're not to earn the love and approval of those around you. You get to rest. You get to be, you actually get to be convinced of God's love and then allow that love to compel you and change the way you live your life without pretending that you're perfect or that you never make mistakes, right? He says, hold fast to this truth, cling to it, build your life on it, draw from this truth, the confession that Jesus has done for you what you never could do for yourself 
every ounce of your value and your worth and your identity. Not from what you can do and what you can accomplish and how great your kids are at sports or how good you are at business or fill in the blank. All from who Christ is and what he's accomplished for you. And so in our culture, I don't think many of us are tempted to go back to the high priest of Israel. If you are, let's talk after. I don't think many of us are, but I do think that many of us try to cover ourselves with priests of our own making, right? We try to cover ourselves with priests of our own making. I mean this, things that we look to or things that we construct to secure for us an identity and acceptance in the world around us. We go to other priests. We forsake the better high priest to go for others. And I don't know what that is for you. For some of us, it is religious activity. For some of us, we think that the things that we do for God is what gives us, and it's what covers us. It's what makes up for the gap that exists between us. I know, I know I'm not perfect, but we're acknowledging a gap. And we feel like we make up for that gap in the things that we do for God or how we show how you know, spiritual we are to others around us. I don't know if it's that for you. For some of us, it's worldly success. That we try to cover the gap that exists in our life and secure for us identity and acceptance in the world around us by going, look at how good I am at whatever whether it's sports or anything, business, how much money you have, anything. We try to cover ourselves with worldly success. For some of us, we try to cover ourselves by protecting ourselves, by keeping secrets, making sure no one finds out, fill in the blank. That's how we, that's the priest that we run to, of going, I can't let anyone find this thing out. And, and what we're doing with that, listen how silly betrayed this is. When we do that, we pretend we're someone we're not, instead of letting Jesus represent us as we actually are and resting in that, we rest in the temporary approval of other people believing we're someone we're not. Why would we do that? And yet we do it all the time. And the author of Hebrews says, that's cuddling the picture. Don't go back to that. Hold fast to Jesus because he is a better high priest. And then, in verse 16, he says, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Let us draw near. I think we can potentially over-spiritualize this word to make it like an impossible thing to do. This word, draw near, it just means to come. It just means to, to get close. That's all it means. And that's what he says. Since this is who Jesus is, you hold fast your confession and get close to him. And how does it say we should draw near? Verse 16, let us then with what? Confidence. You guys are doing really bad at that. When I, when I pause, and let, I want you to tell me, okay? Let us then with? Confidence. Good job. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace. This word confidence in the original language is often translated openly or boldly, but it has this connection to speaking. So he basically says, let us then in plain speech, would be another way to translate it, draw near to God. He's talking about prayer. He's demystifying prayer and you know, all the lofty language that we feel like, all this stuff. That, I mean, it is still a throne that we're going to. The God of the universe is on a throne, but he's demystifying. He says, draw openly, plainly. Ultimately, what he's saying is, it's honestly. Come honestly. God is the only source of the help that you are desperate for. So cling to the confession that you've been given access to come to him and draw near. Get close. Go to him. Let me ask you this. When was the last time 
you drew near to God. And I don't mean when was the last time you prayed because it was time to pray or because you were supposed to pray. And I'm, I'm not hating on that. Having regular rhythms and habits of prayer before meals, before bed, is, is a beautiful thing. We do it with our kids, right? I'm just saying, when was the last time you prayed to God when your desire was to get close to him? The motivator of your heart was to be close to him. It's the last time you drew near to God. And did you go confidently? That confidently, again, it means openly. It means plainly. It doesn't mean arrogantly. You walk in like, what's up, God? No. It means you get to come as you are. Plainly, openly. No, not posturing, not pretending. Right? That, that's the key. First key, we have to believe that he's been given us access. Jesus is the better high priest. You can come. That's what he says. Draw near. The second key to drawing near to God is coming to him honestly. He said, he is sympathetic with us. Jesus knows, he understands, he will not turn you away. That's his job. Our job is to come honestly, not pretending like we don't really have that many needs. If you wanna find grace and mercy and help in a time of need, you know what your time of need is? You know what my time of need is? Always. Not just when you feel like you need something. Our time of need is every minute of our existence, every millisecond of our existence, every time we draw breath in, we are fully dependent on God to sustain us. He says, draw near. Come on, it's no posing, no pretending, no downplaying your sin, no comparing your sin to other people's sin to make you feel better about your sin as you present that sin to God. We do that. Come openly, plainly, with confidence. All our real need brought before the throne of grace, that's when we find the mercy and grace that we need, the help that we need. And some of you, or someone you know, has given up on God. Or they have given up on Christianity because they go, I tried it, it doesn't work. And I, if that's you, I just want to lovingly say, it's not true. You didn't try it. You didn't try this. You might have tried church or not even church, really cultural Christianity. You might have tried some version of obscure religion or some version of legalism or some combination of both. But you didn't try this. You didn't try Jesus is my better high priest. He has stood in my place. He has paid the price for every one of my sins and because of that, he has given me access to the God of the universe. And I draw near to him. If you're telling me that doesn't work, I'll tell you it does. The Bible is saying to all of us this morning, Jesus is a better high priest. Let me just ask you this and we'll be done. Why would we place our salvation in any other hands? Let me read this bit for us again. Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens. Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with us in our weakness, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. And let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Let me pray for us. Father, we're thankful. We're thankful that it is not up to us to do enough or be enough to earn our way uh, into right standing with you. I pray that you would, by the power of your Holy Spirit, help us to quit trying. That you would show us that Jesus really is better. That the covering, that the acceptance, that the identity that he provides for us is better than anything that we can construct on our own or that any other person could give us. 
We need your help for that. Life in this world is difficult. You know that. That's the point of this passage. Jesus knows. He's compassionate. So God, would you be sympathetic to us in these moments? As we respond to you through singing, God, would you allow the power of the Holy Spirit to, to plant the truth of your word deep in our heart that it might bear fruit in our lives for your kingdom, that we might be the church. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand and sing together.